Um, the journey of my life has been crazy, at least to me anyway. Um, and I remember a few years back, well, so to bridge it, this past week, my uh, nine-year-old and 11-year-old um, daughters were, the situation came up that wasn't fair, uh, fair, right? And I, it was so hard for me not to kick into like, um, um, I don't want to say bad dad mode, but it's like hard dad mode, you know, because you're driving in the car and you got your girls in the back and they're saying such and such and you're like, well, that's, that's the way it is. And they said, well, that's not fair. And I'm just so tempted, like the words are on my lips. Well, honey, get used to it because life ain't fair, you know, and, and, uh, and there's, that's true. That is a true statement. <laughs> But there's ways to, uh, to, to, to give it that are better than others. And just a callous, be afraid of life because life ain't fair statement just doesn't cut it. Um, and so I kind of fumbled my way and tried to do that whole thing about life being fair and not fair. And as an adult and the older you get, you kind of have two roads. You either get to the road that, you, the, the, the road that allows you to give more and more to Christ where fair is not an issue anymore, and there's freedom on that road, or there's the road where you're doing things in your own strength, and your heart gets harder, and fairness becomes bigger, but it's at the end of the road, and I've, I've seen uh, sisters and brothers like this at the end of their life, where they have this very strict idea of what is fair, and it's always their idea of fair, and it's very hard, and there's a, a coldness in their heart. I'm not, I'm not saying anything about uh, uh, salvation. I'm talking about freedom. You understand the two different things? Yes, church, two different things? Okay. Well, I, I'm getting to a point here. I got, got to a place a few years ago where, you know, my life with the ups and downs of just life, and I think it was in a down spot, and I was before the Lord in uh, those desperate prayers that I know He loves best, um, and, and there are some of the hardest prayers for me because I'm in a place of desperation. There's some of the best prayers for him because he has said, TJ, I love it when you're desperate because you'll actually listen. Fair enough, right? So I'm down there on my knees, maybe even on my face. I can't remember where. Um, and I'm, and I'm pl pl pleading to the Lord, God, I'm doing my best here. Can't you throw a guy a bone here? Something, Lord. I'm dying here. I'm doing my best, and I remember that phrase, I'm doing my best, and it's like I'm emphatically trying to convince the Lord, I'm really doing my best here, okay? You know my heart. I'm, 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 what, what do you want from me, Lord? I'm doing my best. And he says to me, you're doing your best. How's that working out for you? How's your best working out for you, TJ? And I said, well, I don't know what you mean, Lord. It's my best. What do you, how's that working out? Well, not very good because I'm here. And he said, oh, there you go. Your best, your best isn't really that good. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You do your best. You try your hardest. You're spinning your wheels. You're going nowhere. And the Lord says, yeah, of course you're going nowhere because you're giving it your best. You're giving it your best. And it, it was that was like that moment when, when I started, I say started, it is a journey. I started to realize that 
that somewhere along my journey, I kind of got this idea, and, and I didn't read it in the good scriptures. I kind of picked it up somewhere. Maybe it came from in me. Maybe it came from somewhere else, but I kind of got this idea that salvation was God's thing, and, you know, I, I, I believe, Lord, that you are uh, my Savior, that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and, and I am baptized into your death and raised up again, and baptism is good, and then after I get out of the waters and I get my clothes back on, he's taken care of the salvation part, now I can handle the rest. Anybody with me? Okay, you, you've got my hereafter, Lord, but the here and now I can handle on my own, or at least I'll try. If I need your help, Lord, I'll call you. Send you a text, you know, shoot you an Instagram of my situation, and you can, you can I'll, I'll post it on Facebook. I friended you, Lord. You can read about it. You can post a like or, or help me out here. Right? Uh, here's the salvation, but I can handle it from there. And I, I kind of realized that I was doing life in my best, in my strength, not his. And I say I started to learn it because it is something that I struggle with. I struggle with doing things in my strength rather than doing things in his strength. Now, I don't know. I can't even stand up here and try and pitch you the differences between the two because if you were to look at someone doing something in their own strength and doing something in the strength of the Lord, it might look like the same event. For instance, you can wash dishes in your own strength or you can wash dishes with the strength of the Lord. You can wash your car, you can do housework, you can go to your job, you can speak to people, you can interact, you can go to an Ohio State game and do it in your strength or in the strength of the Lord. You see, I understand that God wants to touch every part of our lives, every part. There's no area that he doesn't want to be a part of and that he doesn't want to give us strength to do something amazing in that thing that we're doing. I can't tell you how it works or the differences. I can just tell you that when I do things in my strength, I get tired real fast. When I do things in the strength of the Lord, amazing things happen. And tired doesn't feel the same. Tired doesn't feel the same. This, on a, on a real quick side note, little rabbit hole here, if you've gone on a mission trip before, I'm getting ready to send a team down to the DR. It's good stuff, exciting stuff. If you've ever gone to a place where you can work hard, you can work your fingers to the bone, but you're doing it for people that can do nothing back, you know, there is an absolute joy in that. And you may at the end of the day be bone tired, but you're not tired. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay? Now, that doesn't have to happen on the mission field. That doesn't have to happen overseas. God's kingdom, God's kingdom is every one of us here, boots on the ground, bringing that into our lives and the people around us. Think about how that would transform the world. Think about how that would transform the world. God's idea, well, we read it again. We read it last week and I had him read it again as the scripture uh, during the service, that Isaiah 61 passage. Zachary, call that one up for me real quick. Go, go back to the scripture reference there, uh, the scripture reading earlier on. The spirit of the sovereign Lord 
is upon me, has anointed me, right? You got it for me? There we go. He has called me to, now I get it. Jesus read this and he said, this is fulfilled in your speaking. He said, this is what the Lord has called me to do. But hear me on this. Jesus then commissions his disciples, his followers, the other sons and daughters of God, and says, guys, what I have done, you go and do likewise. The same commission I got is now your commission. The same anointing I got is going to be given to you in the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that I have is the same Holy Spirit that you have. You with me on that? You realize that's how part of the incarnation worked. It wasn't Jesus coming down as Clark Kent, but he's really Superman. It was God emptying himself of his godhood to walk like a man because he was a man. So in other words, Jesus himself said this time and time and time again. I'm not doing anything of my own power. I'm only doing what God allows me to do, empowers me to do through his spirit. Jesus says, I'm not speaking my own words. I'm only speaking what the father tells me to speak. This is a pattern. This is a model. Jesus did this. The incarnation part of it was to say, this is how it's supposed to be. It is supposed to be. We are the images of God filled with God, filled with his spirit. Is this too much? Are we, am I getting off the reservation here? Okay. So, so what are we called to do. We're called to be able to go to people in the worst of circumstances and say, good news, there is hope. Good news, you're not forgotten. Good news, no matter how broken things seem to be, Christ makes all things new. He said, let's go to the next slide there. You're going to have to walk with me, Zach. The clicker's not working. To bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. Keep going. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. I love this. The oil of gladness instead of mourning a garment of praise instead of despair. You realize that despair, depression is at pandemic levels in our culture. Anxiety and depression are like off the shizzy, okay? That's like, that's like a cool way of saying they're like insane, right? Maybe I used it wrong. <laughs> to get with my hip stuff. You realize that if you bring the oil of gladness, a garment of praise, I guarantee you that you will meet people needing it all over your life. Now, I get it. Keep, keep going. Let's keep going. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planning for the Lord, the display of his splendor. This is Isaiah 61. This is the commission given to Christ. This is the commission given to us. But you say, TJ, how in the world am I supposed to do that? My life itself is a train wreck. I say, exactly. Exactly. I understand. You know why I understand? Because I am with you. I'm doing things in my own strength, not in the strength of the Lord. When we operate in the spirit in the strength of the Lord, that is our commission. 
That is what we are called to do. And we take that no matter what our circumstances are. Did you notice that? It didn't say anything about circumstances. It said, you go and you will do this. You will be this. It doesn't matter what job you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what kind of family you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what kind of abilities and talents you provide. It's not about uh, what you have to offer. It's about what Jesus has to offer through you. So, so I, I know what you're going to say. Okay, t- this sounds so good, TJ. This sounds so good, but how do, I, how do I let the strength of the Lord be my strength? How do, I, how do I let the Spirit walk in me and not in my own strength? What do I do that? You know, I want to start by looking at the words of Jesus. Let's look at who we are. This actually has a point to it that ties in with this whole big theme that we've been discussing this year about combating uh, despair and disappointment, right? Uh, about combating bitterness, about combating these epidemic level things in the church with what they're supposed to be. We were not made for bitterness against people or even ourselves. We were not made for disappointment. We were made for delight in one another and we were made for wonder at our life. That's what we were made for. I want to look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Okay, let's go actually to the sermon. Let's actually start the sermon, Zach. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 16 is what we're going to look at this morning. I apologize, I did not get the page number of your pew Bible. If somebody finds that, you could shout it out and we'll all be grateful. But it's Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus. He sees crowds coming and he gets up and he speaks. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is possibly the greatest sermon ever preached. But as we're reading this, as you're listening to it, well, let's start. Let's just read the text. Let it speak for itself. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down, His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You know, I've heard so many sermons on uh, the Beatitudes here. Uh, the blessings here, and they talk about that word blessed and how um, we're, it's hard for us to really get the full import of what Jesus is saying. Uh, this idea of, of blessed back in Jesus's day had a very concrete understanding. Uh, nowadays, we've almost made it ephemeral. It's blessed, you know, and it's almost like, okay, you know, it's like giving someone a blessing. Oh, I'm going to give you a blessing, you know, and what, what does that even really mean? You know, when someone blesses the food, does it change the food? Does it change the quality of the food? Anybody remember Christmas vacation? The blessing, you know, right? What, what changed? So with us, blessings sort of ephemeral. One uh, uh, commentator that I read said that in Jesus' day, it was a very concrete understanding. So you could almost say, say Jesus is saying, wealthy, rich, okay? Wealthy, rich, 
prosperous. Which, which would actually kind of make sense with what Jesus is doing here, flipping everything on its head. Prosperous, rich are the poor in spirit. Wealthy are those who mourn. We have this idea, even in, even in our uh, so blessed culture, this idea that the rich somehow live better lives than us. Come on, let's be honest. You know, anybody here, would you turn down just a little more? How much is enough? Just a little more. Who here would turn it down? We have this idea. I mean, anybody remember? Who here is old enough to remember lifestyles of the rich and famous? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And you'd see all this opulence and this obscene spending of money. And you'd say, wow, that looks great. Do you know what sliver of society has the highest suicide rate? The rich and famous, folks. So that illusion that wealth somehow brings happiness, Jesus flipped it on its head 2,000 years ago. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way that they persecuted the prophets, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven Salt and light. We sang the opening song, Build Your Kingdom Here by Ren Collective. I, I really like that song. I, I wish we could, if you've ever seen the video, they've got a guy with some sort of instrument where he pounds it on the ground. And it's just so much energy and so happy and so uplifting. But there's a line in it that almost sounds e to my ears. We are your church. We are are the hope on earth. Something about that, when I first listened to it, it's like, mm, I, Lord, you are the hope. You are the hope. And he would say, yeah, I am. But guess what? You are the salt and you are the light. You are the salt and you are the light. Folks, we are plan A of God's kingdom. There doesn't need to be a plan B. He didn't come up with a plan B because he doesn't need one. We are the hope. But, but if we're salt and we lose our saltiness, if we're light and we're hiding it under a, come on, a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. What, what good is that? We weren't made for bushels, bowls. 
We weren't made to lose our saltiness. We were made for something greater, something more than this. We are the hope. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we get there? I want to look at that first phrase in these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. We live in a day and age that has never been more desperate for the kingdom of God. Never been more desperate for it. Because you won't find truth outside of the kingdom. You won't find healing for your hurts outside of the kingdom. You won't find freedom. You won't find freedom from from whatever it is outside of the kingdom. We live in a day and age desperate for the kingdom of God. Desperate for it. But, But folks, we have to be this to bring that. We have to be this to bring that. So this very first phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. If if Jesus is saying blessed, rich, wealthy, thriving, prosperous are the poor, what's he meaning here? Here is this this strange, I don't know what it is. I I don't want to call it a dichotomy. I don't want to call it an irony. I don't want to call it, it's just, it is what it is, being part of the kingdom of God, that the poorer in spirit I am, the greater in my spirit he is. The poorer in my spirit I am, the greater in my spirit he is. So let me share with you something, and this isn't mine. I'm not going to claim that I got this. This was a, a pastor that I like to listen to, John Piper. Anyone John Piper out there? Piper fans? Okay, Pied Piper, I love him. He said, um, uh, he described this idea of poor in spirit in several different ways, and, and I liked them, so I'm going to bring them. So for instance, he said that being poor in spirit is a sense of powerlessness in ourselves. A sense of powerlessness in ourselves, Okay. Now, what's awesome about that is when I am honest with myself and I recognize my powerlessness, he uses the word a sense several times and he describes that. He said it's a sense of powerlessness in ourselves, that those who are poor in spirit have a sense of it. And he's going to say a sense in the next uh, several things he mentions. He says sense because he says objectively the truth is All of us are powerless, period. The difference is, do you have a sense of it or are you completely ignoring it? Do you have an understanding of the truth, the truth of your powerlessness? That the reality is you can't fix your marriage. You can't fix your friendships and your relationships. You can't fix your family. You can't fix your job. You can't, you can't fix, folks, you can't even fix yourself. That's the truth. You can, you can compensate all day, you, all day long. You can compensate, okay? Compensating is when you have a flaw and you do something to cover that flaw up. You do something that allows you to get by. Um, when I was growing up, one of my best friends, Brooke, he had this red... Um, 
uh, car fall into pieces. It was a Volkswagen station wagon. Anyone? Oh, baby. I mean, driving in that thing, we were princes of the universe. It was one of those kind of things, you know. But that thing was falling apart. And so Bondo and duct tape were his best friends, okay? Now, here's the thing. He learned when his muffler fell off at 45 miles an hour that Bondo and duct tape are just compensating for the real issue that we couldn't afford to get the thing fixed, right? So you, you, uh, you get the idea? Now, we understand that in the physical. Think about it in relational terms. Think about it in relational terms. What are the things in your relationships that sabotage your relationships? Codependency, anger, bitterness, jealousy. What, what is it that, that in your relationships sabotages those relationships? That keeps you from enjoying and delighting in those relationships? What is it that's keeping you from delighting in those relationships? You ask people that that don't have a grasp of the poverty of spirit, and they will tell you that the problem in their relationships is always the other person. A person that does not have a grasp of the poverty of their own spirit will tell you that the problem in their relationship is, well, they did blank, or well, they are blank. It's, it's sort of like when you have a couple that comes to you for counseling, and they said, I'd have a great marriage if she would just... I'd have a great marriage if he would just, right? And, you know, from, from a person sitting on the opposite side of things, at that point, you're like, whoa, man, we are going to waste the next 45 minutes. This isn't going to be pretty. I don't mean to say that bad. I, I, I'm saying that as a wake-up to us. What is it in your own life, in your own heart, that is sabotaging your relationships? What is it? A sense of powerlessness. You can't even fix yourself, let alone fix the things around. I know we all wish we were president for a day. If I was king of the world, the first thing I would do, term limits on politicians. Anyone? Come on. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Term limits on politicians. If I was king of the world, if people would just do what I, you get the idea. A sense of powerlessness in ourselves. Here's the amazing thing about it. That's why I say this dichotomy, this strange irony, this just fact of being in the kingdom, that the more I am poor in my spirit, the stronger in my spirit he is. And so I don't have to be ashamed of my powerlessness. I get to rejoice in his strength. So every one of these things about the being poor in spirit has an answer in the spirit of God that frees us, that empowers us, that allows us to do things operating not in the physical, but in the spiritual, operating not in the world, but in the spirit, operating not in a place of just getting by and surviving, but in a place of thriving, in a place of freedom. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomprehensible great power for us who believe. Folks, I don't need to have any power 
myself. All of his power should be within me. You get the difference? Okay, uh, ne- next one. That was Ephesians. Those who are poor in spirit have a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. Spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. You bring nothing to the table. You bring nothing to the table. It, it's, it's, again, I had this sense, you know, I would come and I gave my life to Christ and now I need to sort of earn his favor. Now I need to sort of work my salvation out. And, and I'm not talking in a fear and trembling kind of Philippians way. I'm not talking the good way. I'm talking the bad way where when I'm doing good things, I feel good about my relationship with God. And when I screw up, I feel bad about my relationship with God. That's spiritual schizophrenia, folks. It's a mental disorder of our spirit. Should not be. We bring nothing to the table. I can't earn his favor. Can't do anything to, to, he can't love me any more than he already does. Folks, realizing that, realizing that I can rest in God's favor completely because I don't need to bring anything to the table. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How about the next one? Next one, there, Zachary. Uh, well, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. You know, the, the, it's a classic one there. Spirit, being poor in spirit, you have a sense of moral uncleanliness before God. This one really messes with my head. Again, this is a journey I'm on because the closer I become to Christ, I come to Christ, the closer I come to Christ, the more I recognize what a screw up I am. But at the same time, I recognize he still loves me and he's working on me and it frees me. See, when I, when I give up judging myself, I have to give up judging others But you know what else I get to do? This is the good part. I get to give up others judging me. Folks, you you can heap all the judgment you want on me. Doesn't change that I'm a son of God. It doesn't change who I am. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, I got all figured out. I'm not going to get up here and and stand here and say, hey, when people yell at me or whatever, put me down, that it still doesn't affect me. But you know what? There is a place where it doesn't. And that's where I want to live. I've visited there a couple of times. It's better than Disneyland. A place where you are free from what other people think. This isn't freedom to be arrogant. This isn't freedom to to put yourself above anybody else. It's not. It's a freedom to love completely. It's a freedom. A sense of moral uncleanliness before God, right? Of my righteousness that's just filthy rags... That's before God, but here's the thing. I stand before God and I say, oh Lord, I'm a sinner among people who are sinners. And he says, guess what? I'm gonna clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Being poor in spirit means you look at the log in your own eye first. You look at the log in your own eye 
before you even think about the speck in your brother or your sister's eye. Now, hear me on that. Just because you're looking at your own log doesn't mean you don't help your brother and your sister as well, okay? It wouldn't be loving if you just left them with a splinter in their eye. But you get how it works. We look at ourselves first, others next. It's one of the great criticisms of the church that we're judgmental, that we're trying to tell everybody else how to live. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're messed up and we're desperate. And we're just saying, hey, get on board. Come, come join the party. <laughs> I had a... Yeah, okay. Next one. A sense of personal unworthiness before God. A sense of personal unworthiness before God. I love Good Friday service. Anybody love Good Friday service with me? I love Good Friday service. We darken the church. We really focus on the cost of our sin. We really focus on what God wants to take from us. But there is a joy, a deep joy in a Good Friday service. Because while I focus on the cost of my salvation, I also see God's great love for me. You know the value of something by the cost ascribed to it. I had a, it, when I was going to Ozark Christian College, there, uh, a guy named uh, Meredith uh, Williams, uh, he did Impact Brass and Singers. I'm, I really hope you, none of you remember that. I hope you're not that old. But they were a traveling group. They went around. He was a really good guy. He had this strange hobby. He collected McDonald's Happy Meal toys. No, 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 no. I mean, like, he actually had buildings with these things. I mean, he collected them. He was literally like the expert on McDonald's Happy Meal toys for North America. Now, that is such a niche market, right? I mean, like, wow, is that ever niche. But I'm telling you, you like think of obscure Happy Meal toys, go online, go to eBay, and find out how much they're going for. Now, folks, that's just a dumb piece of plastic. But people will pay stupid prices for it, right? The value of something is ascribed by what people will pay for it. Anybody remember the, the most priceless stamp? You know, if you're a stamp collector, it was one with the plane upside down. It was a, it was a mistake. It was a raw, but and yet it's millions of dollars. Folks, the value, the cost... For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, God said every man, woman, child, globally, historically, has enough value in them that I will give my son. He will become sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Do you get that? And, and I get it. You, my first inclination, if I'm sitting in a pew and I hear this preached at me, my first inclination is to say, oh, wow, that's great. Everyone has value. You have value to God. You do. You do. You. You have value to God. You. But because of his great love for you, God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. Next one. 
Real quick, we'll buzz through these, I promise. Being poor in spirit is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. Second Corinthians, Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. If there is any life, if there's any joy or any usefulness, anything that you do that has real meaning to it, it has to be in and through and by the grace of God. I don't care what you're doing in your life. I don't care if you think you're working some piddly job or if you think you're the president of the United States. You give me a sister and a brother washing dishes for the glory of God and I will show you someone doing something that is greater than President Trump. But we look with human eyes. God says, I will use that effort. Like Paul said, working harder than all of them. But not him, but the grace of God that was in him. The grace of God that was in him. Now, how, how do you get this? Okay, TJ, how do I become poor in spirit? What's, what's the actual application here? How do you become poor in spirit? Folks, to this very day, I have less and less answers. But I have more and more Jesus. I got less and less answers on how to, but I got more and more Jesus. So let me give you something to do this week. Next slide. Next slide. See him. See him. It's that flagship verse that is with me all the time in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So this week, make an effort, make a prayer, make a dedication right now. Lord, let me see you in the world. Let me see you in your word. Let me see you in your work. Not in my work. Let me see you in your work. By the way, anybody know what God's work is? What his number one work is? It's not to get a certain person elected. It's not to elevate or God's work, God's workmanship. Okay? So when you go out and you interact and you see people, I want you to look at them and they say, that is God's work. That is God's work. Lord, let me see you in the world. Let me see you in your word. Let me see you in your work. Let me see you in your work. God speaks through this, folks. Just putting a plug in for number two. If you're not reading this, you're missing out on his voice. I mean, trust me, I, God speaks in the spirit as well, okay? It's good there. But, but this is what gives you the ability to hear this, okay? Let's say a prayer together and we will go in peace. Read with me. Lord, help me to know my poverty so that I will know your riches. 
Help me to mourn the brokenness so I can rejoice in your wholeness. Lead me this week to see you in your world, your word, and your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, take these prayers. Take our hearts, Lord, our stubborn hearts, our hard hearts. Do whatever it takes, Father, to give us that poverty of spirit that your son spoke of. God, we want to be blessed. We want to be children of your kingdom. Not just squeaking into heaven, Lord, but but children of your kingdom here, building your kingdom here and now, starting with the greatest place for each one of us, our own hearts. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Go in peace.